You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Good morning, church. How are we? Fantastic. Well, I'm excited about uh, stepping back into Ecclesiastes with you this morning. If you've got your copy of God's Word, you're welcome to turn there. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you will find one uh, on one of the book racks on a seat in front of you. You're welcome to open that and follow along with us. You're also welcome to take that with you uh, when you leave here. That's our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. Ecclesiastes is a book found in a small section of the Old Testament called the Wisdom Literature, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are the books that make up that section of Scripture. And we're currently walking verse by verse through Ecclesiastes. This is week four, and we're going to be in verses 12 through 26 of chapter 2 this morning. And this is what Solomon writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what's done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. That I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he'll be master over all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't work for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart doesn't rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can offer, who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Father, we just ask very simply and humbly this morning that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word. Father, we ask, that your Holy Spirit would move among us with scalpel in hand as the divine heart surgeon to expose the lies that we're believing, to expose the longings deep within us and to point us to Christ who is the one who fulfills all of our deepest desires and to Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, Holy Spirit, we want to see Jesus. Help us do that. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
Well, Solomon, if you've not already guessed it, is not going to let us live in the shallows. He intends to help you and I learn wisdom. So he's going to take us by the hand and he's going to pull us, sometimes kicking and screaming, into deep waters. Now we might be tempted to squirm when our feet can't touch the bottom anymore. When Solomon says things and asks questions and uses language that makes us a little too uncomfortable for our taste, when we can't quite stay afloat on all of our Christian cliches, but the Holy Spirit is inviting you and I to take the hand of this man of wisdom that we might learn how to respond rightly to God in a world where death is the end of every search for meaning, for significance, and for satisfaction. Here this morning in our text, Solomon comes to the end of his search. Now last week we talked about how he had plundered all of the pleasures of earth, seeking to squeeze from them some sense of lasting meaning and satisfaction, but he came to the conclusion that it's not found anywhere around us. And so here in our text, at the beginning, he turns back to the source of his search itself. And test number two reads like this. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's been done. Translation. Don't think you've got one over on Solomon because you live in the modern world. He was a king with wealth and power and wisdom beyond what you and I will ever know. And so if he's tried it, you can be assured that it's been tried. So why not interrogate the source of the search, which is what he does. He asks the question, is there any gain in wisdom itself? In other words, stepping back from all the pleasures of the earth, does the wise person enjoy any advantage at all over the foolish person? Solomon's answer, yes, but. Yes, but. Yes, he says, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. Look at verse 13. Saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. As we've already talked about, wisdom might not be able to crack the code. It might not be able to put more time on the clock, it might not be able to straighten out what God has bent, and it might not be able to squeeze lasting significance out of the stuff of earth. In the end, wisdom may actually leave you with more questions than answers, but at least wisdom helps a person live in the light of reality as things are, rather than walking around in the darkness oblivious to the way that things really are. In other words, the wise person welcomes truth. Don't pretend with me. Don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. Just give it to me straight. That's what wisdom wants. No matter how much it hurts, no matter how much it disappoints, no matter how it wounds my ego and my expectations. Just tell me the truth. The foolish person, on the other hand, would rather remain in the dark. The foolish person would rather take their eyes out of their head and not have to worry 
about the world as it really is. The foolish person walks around working like some kind of self-deceived madman trying to harvest something from the stuff of earth that it'll never offer up, and they're just happy and content to do it. So there is some gain in wisdom over folly, but look at what Solomon goes on to say. Halfway through verse 14, he writes, And yet, I perceived the same thing happens to all of them, the wise and the fool. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise, what? Dies like the fool. You see, Solomon's saying that wisdom's profit, wisdom's gain is relative. And it's ultimately relativized by what? Death. Both the story of the person who understands and accepts what life really is and the person who lives completely oblivious to the way the world really works end the same way. Now here for the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon forces us to stare long and hard at death as it is under the sun, a reality that will eventually come knocking on every single human door. The fool may die young and the wise may die old, but in the end, they both die. So Solomon, being the wise man that he is, with this reality in hand, he asks a very honest question. What's the point? Why in the end have I been so very wise? Now this is what I call a Psalm 73 question. Okay? Are you familiar with Psalm 73? If you're not, I want to encourage you to go back and revisit it. There in Psalm 73, Asaph wrestles just as Solomon does here. Seeing how the wicked prosper and the righteous often do not, Asaph writes these words, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So death consumes the Hitlers and the Mother Teresas. Death consumes the life of the person who shoots up the convenience store and the life of the off-duty police officer who successfully stops him but loses his own life in the process. Death consumes the person who cheats on his taxes and the person who doesn't, the person who cheats on his spouse and the person who doesn't, the dad who abandons his kids and the dad who gives his life for his kids. Under the sun, death consumes every single person who's ever lived, living, or will live. And Solomon says, what's the point? Are you uncomfortable yet? <laughs> now don't panic. Don't panic. <laughs> Solomon has an answer to this question. Now we like our answers to come quickly, but I'm telling you that the ultimate answer doesn't come until the last two verses of the book. Okay? Solomon wants us to sit here for a minute or two. Why? Because God intends to use the reality of death 
to show us how to live. He wants death to mentor us. But in order for that to happen, you and I have to face up to reality. We have to stare death in the face. When we do, Solomon shows us that death should cause us to respond in at least two ways. First and foremost, it should compel us to grieve. Look back at the text. In verse 17, Solomon's language gets just a tad more uncomfortable, okay? He says, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So I hated life because. What do you think about Solomon's response to death? One author writes this. We don't expect to hear a Bible preacher publicly announce his distaste for his life and his work. Our expectations for those who follow and speak for God more often resemble the picture offered by an employee at a local Christian bookstore near my first pastorate. When asked how she was doing, she always beamed vibrantly and announced, I'm blessed. Now, while it may be challenging to some of us, you and I need to hear Solomon's response as the actual response of faith to a world heaving and groaning under the weight and the curse of sin. That's why Solomon says he hates life, by the way. Look at the verse again. So I hated life because what's done under the sun was grievous to me. I saw its nature as vapor or smoke or mist or fog. I saw that life stole away from every person any fruits of his pursuits, and it broke me. It broke me. Friends, this is a holy hatred aimed at the heart of the curse of sin and its deadly effects. These are the tears of Jesus at the grave of his friend Lazarus in John 11. These are the labor pains that the creation experiences as it awaits the return of Christ as Paul describes them in Romans 8. These are the inner groans we feel as we continue to struggle against remaining sin. Talks about that in Romans 6 through 8. These friends are the how long, oh Lord, prayers of the dear saints who are suffering with chronic depression and chronic anxiety and chronic pain. These are the words of a young wife struggling under the weight of the news that she will never be able to have kids. These are the words of a young husband sitting with his wife across from the doctor when the doctor tells her that she's got terminal cancer and they've only been married for six months. These are the words of a mother and a father who've lost their teenage daughter to suicide. These are the how long, O Lord, prayers of the saints in the face of the injustice of abortion, in the face of crimes that go unpunished, in the face of evil that seems to know no bounds, no restraints, and no fear. The truly wise, Solomon says, Learn how to manage life. 
Not by frantically trying to put all the pieces of the broken vase back together. Nor by smiling their way through in spite of the hurt and the heartache. Nor by trying to convince themselves that things really aren't as bad as they are. Nor by repeating Christian cliches in the hopes that they'll make things magically better. No, 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 no. Solomon would mentor us into a life of faith that places God at the center of everything, including the grief that comes our way as a direct result of living in a bent and broken world where everything dies. Solomon would have us accept that there are some things that cannot be fixed. Do you hear me? There are some things that cannot be fixed. Solomon wrestles with that in verses 18 to 23. Look. He says, I hated all of my work for which I worked under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who's going to come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Solomon has spent his entire life gaining wisdom and building this flourishing kingdom that was basically the height of Israel's history. And now Solomon's left to wonder how is the person who comes after me going to treat it? Now, if you know anything, you know that his son Rehoboam messed up everything. So Solomon's worst fears came true. Now, that doesn't always happen, but Solomon's point is that you can work your entire life trying to amass an entire fortune and fame and a name and all these other things. And when you die, you have no control over how your kids are going to handle it. They might not even care about it. In fact, I have had enough grandparents and great-grandparents die, and I've gone through enough of those family members' things to know that the things that were important to them mean what to me? Nothing. It'll be true for you too. The things that are important to you, your kids will go, meh, meh, meh. They will. They will. Solomon would mentor us into a life that places God at the center of everything. He would have us accept that there are some things that can't be fixed. And he would have us to enter into those things wisely with godly grief. We willing to make room for this holy hatred in our lives and in our church. Look, if we're going to be a church faithful to Christ and his gospel, a church that walks in wisdom, we're going to have to make room for one another to grieve the curse of sin and to grieve death and to do it in such a way that we accept and receive one another's tears and anger and frustration and uncomfortable words without trying to fix one another with Christian cliches or Bible verses out of context that can sound a lot more to the grieving like poisonous arrows than soothing medicine. Two parents come to you. And they're overcome with emotion. They just found out and you're just finding out. Not minutes later, that their teenage son was killed in a car accident. You don't put your hand on their shoulder and say, 
good to know God's got a plan. Is that true? Yeah. But there's a wrong time to say right things. There's a right time. And at the right time, we often say the wrong things. What we want by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit's power is to say the right thing at the right time or to simply shut up. Right? Job's friends were genuine friends for the first seven days they spent with him. You know why? Because they said nothing. Did you know that God has given us language to use in relationship with him? When we feel like Solomon feels in this text, about a third of the Psalms are categorized as laments, which means that they express some sort of sorrow or disappointment or anger or anxiety over the way that things are in this fallen world. And God has given them to us so that we can bring our whole selves to him. Isn't that remarkable? Because here's how we often relate to God. My relationships with God is right here, but I'm going to keep my doubt over here. I'm going to keep my anxiety back here. I'm going to keep my depression in this drawer over here. I'm going to keep my fear right here. I'm going to keep my anger here and my frustration here. You know what God wants from you? All of it. Did you know God's big enough to handle all of it. He is. He's big enough to handle all of it. The Bible does not minimize grief, and we shouldn't either. Death is real. Death is wrong. Death is an enemy, and death deserves holy hatred. This, however, doesn't mean that grief should be our only response. Solomon also says, death should prompt us to receive life as a gift. Look at verses 24 to 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Okay. Solomon's already told us that the pleasures of life have no ultimate gain in them. He's also told us that the wise have no immunity from death or from the miseries of life under the sun. And Solomon's also shown us how to grieve these things. The final paragraph of chapter 2 is the first of four primary conclusions scattered throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And this one comes at the very end of his quest for satisfaction. Here Solomon tells us how to receive the world in light of the grave as a gift from God. Every ordinary moment of every ordinary day of our very ordinary lives. Nowhere along the way, by the way, has Solomon said that life is meaningless. Nor has he said that life is empty or vain. Instead, Solomon has told us life is beyond our control, it's beyond our understanding, and it's always going to frustrate us if we attempt to leverage life 
and the stuff of earth to get some kind of ultimate meaning from it. Instead, in the kind of world where you and I can't get that from the stuff of earth, Solomon says, rather than holding tightly to the things that you and I acquire and achieve, we're to simply open our hands and receive. Receive whatever God puts in them. We're to receive whatever God gives each and every day and to enjoy the gifts that he gives, nothing more and nothing less. So look at the text. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Do you have something to eat and drink when this service ends today? Gift. Do you have a way to provide an income for your family so that you can enjoy those things? Gift. Do you have breath in your lungs so that when you got up today, you dressed yourself, you drove yourself here, and you hope to get up again tomorrow and go back into the world and the work that God has given you? Gift. In fact, Solomon goes on to say that you and I can't enjoy these gifts without the giver. He says, apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You see, we're to cease striving and simply receive. Death teaches us that we'll never be able to hold on to any of it anyway. And we do this by enjoying the gifts and enjoying the giver in and through the gifts. By the way, that's the only way we can do it. Why? Because without the giver, you and I tend to make the gifts into God's substitutes. Without the giver, we tend to take the gifts for granted. Without the giver, we tend to think that we accomplished all of these things for ourselves. When we do that, these things will fail us every time. This, by the way, is what Solomon means when he says that the sinner gathers and collects only to give to those who please God. Try to find something lasting in the stuff of earth and it will only disappoint you and frustrate you and in the end, leave you what? Empty-handed. The key to enjoyment is humility. Receiving whatever God provides and recognizing that whatever we have, God has provided. Pride wants to control. Humility simply receives. Pride wants to achieve and acquire. Humility is content with whatever's given. Now, realizing that life is a gift can help you and I deal with life in a way that actually honors God. It can help us learn to pay attention to what God is giving rather than what we are achieving. Receiving life as a gift can change our get out there, seize the day mentality into the kind of mentality that says, open your hands, receive with humility what's right in front of you as enough, Solomon wants us to pay attention to the smallest of things in our everyday ordinary lives that are gifts. To receive them as, as much 
Not to invest in them something that they can never give us back, but to just receive them. I don't know about y'all, but I need to pay more attention. I need to pay more attention. It can also help us learn to see that Christian growth doesn't so much mean doing different things as it does doing things differently. Not for me, but for him and for others. It can also help us learn to see that under the sun, God is found right where we are, waiting among the ordinary things of our everyday lives. These things, this this lot is our gift. And we don't find God on the other side of the greener grass. By the way, it's never greener. You know that, right? It's never really greener. God's found right here, right now, right where you are. Though death exists, so do warm cups of coffee on cold mornings. Gift. Though death exists, so does laughter at the dinner table. Gift. Though death exists, so does red velvet cake. (laughs) Come on, y'all got to give me an amen on that one. (laughs) Though death exists, So does the health to get out of bed every day and provide for my family. Though death exists, so do the precious friendships we enjoy with one another for the time we have. Man. How many pay attention, Lord? How many pay attention? In 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Oh, man. Everyday ordinary moments have a profound glory of their own. In a world where bad days are normal and death stalks all of us, when you realize that the end of the road is going to come sooner or later for you, it makes that steak taste better. It does. In a world of death, the gifts of God also remind us that God loves us. That God's with us. That God cares not only about the big picture, I used to think it was cheesy when people would pray things like, God, would you, would you give me a parking lot close to the building at Walmart today? Until my mom told me. She was having a really hard day one time. A really rough day. And she pulled into the parking lot at Walmart. And she said, God, nothing's gone right today. It's been really hard. Would you give me a parking place close to the building? And you know what he did? He did. Man. He did. Man, that's how much he cares. That's how much he cares. Divine wisdom trains us to grieve in light of the grave and to receive all that we have as gift in light of the grave. You see, you and I live between overlapping realities. We live in the messy middle between death's defeat and death's final destruction. So joy and sorrow, grief and celebration. 
These things cannot be locked away in separate departments, yet that's what we try to do. Looking at one without the other means seeing only a portion of the whole story. When we allow grief to overwhelm enjoyment, we lose the hope of resurrection. We lose sight of the ways that God's new forever life is breaking into this broken world and changing people and changing things. We lose sight of the many gifts that God bestows upon us each and every day. When we lose or or when we allow enjoyment to overwhelm grief, we tend to live superficially. To laugh when we should what? Cry? To ignore suffering when we should shed tears over it? To turn a blind eye to all the pain, the heartache, the evil, and the death that still remains in our world? In short, we become too comfortable right here and right now amid the ruins of a world where death has been dealt a final blow, but it's not down for the count yet. Death is a right here, right now reality. And it deserves the holy hatred of a holy people who feel the burden of the curse of sin. But friends, it will not always be so. It will not always be so. Christ will return. He will set things right. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. And when Christ comes again, he will do just that. So while we grieve, we rejoice. And while we rejoice, we grieve. When you and I come to the Lord's table, which we're about to do, our minds and our hearts are trained time after time to receive life as a gift. All of life is represented in the bread and the cup. All of material creation. We receive it and we give thanks for it. When we come to the table, we're reminded that God provides for every need we have in Christ Jesus. Through the ordinary means of bread and juice, We partake of the promise that God is for us and not against us. We partake of the promise that Christ is enough for us, that we are forgiven in him and belong to him forever through the blood of the new covenant. When we come to the table, we're reminded that Christ is not only present with us, but that Christ is also present with us out there each and every day of our lives in this fallen world you and i will experience the effects of sin and death we will grieve and we will rightly respond with deep feelings of holy hatred and discontent but this must be a passing response For the ultimate posture of wisdom is take and eat. Confessing that God has gifted us with life, 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 and more life in Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, You've confessed him as Lord and Savior. And you're not walking in unrepentant sin. Now you may be struggling. You may be grieving right now. You may be wrestling with temptation. If that's the case, I invite you to take the cup. I invite you to take it up. But if you're walking in unrepentant sin, I invite you to say no, because this is a fellowship meal. A meal where you and I sit across from Jesus and he feeds us and he reminds us he's for us and not against us. On the night that 
Jesus was betrayed by one of his very own disciples. He took a loaf of unleavened bread and sitting before his disciples gathered around this table, he took it, he, he broke it, he blessed it, and he gave it to them. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do, we do it to proclaim Christ's death. If you're new to Mountain View, you'll find a little cup and a wafer uh, underneath the seat in front of you. I invite you to take that and to receive the bread now as a reminder that Christ's body has been broken for you, that you might be made whole. After, gen after dinner, Jesus also took a cup of wine and he held that before his disciples. And he said to them, This is the blood of the new covenant. My blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink from it, all of you. It's a reminder today to all of us that Jesus' blood was spilt, that his body expired, that he actually what? Died for you and for me. That when you and I die, we might experience death, not as the end, but as a doorway into his presence. So receive the cup this morning. And in it, receive the promise of eternal life in a world of death. After you've received those, I want to invite you to do something. Take a comfortable posture of prayer. I want to share something with you this morning. I'll read it. And I want you to take a posture where you can simply meditate on it, okay? And then we'll close by singing together. Children of the living God, let us now speak of dying. And let us speak without fear, for we have already died with Christ, and our lives are not our own. Our dying is part of the story that God is telling to us, and part of the story that God is telling through us. It is not a dark and hopeless word we must take pains to skirt or mention only in hushed whispers lest our conversations grow awkward and uncomfortable. Rather, death is a present and unavoidable reality and one through which we, the people of God, must learn to openly walk with one another. Yes, it is cause for lament. Death is a horrible and inevitable sorrow. It is grief. It is numb shock and raw pain and long seasons of weeping and ache. And we will experience it as such. But it is more than all of that.
death has been blindly serving. The deeper purposes of God within us. Giving us the knowledge that all we gather in this short life will soon be scattered. That all we covet will soon be lost. That all we accomplish by our ambition will soon be rendered as meaningless as vapor. Death reveals the utter vanity of all of our misplaced worship and all of our feebly invested hopes. And once we've seen, in light of death, how meaningless are all of our human strivings, then, 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 we can finally apprehend what the radical hope of a bodily resurrection means for mortals like us. And how the labors of Christ now reshape and reinterpret every facet of our lives, rebuilding the structures of our hopes until we know that nothing of eternal worth will ever be lost. Yes, we are crucified with our Lord. But all who are baptized into his death are also baptized into his resurrection. And when it is our time to die, we will find that our dying has also been rewritten, folded in, and made part of that resurrection. Have we not been all along rehearsing Christ's death and his life in the sacrament of communion? We have been both remembering and rehearsing our union and communion with him. Oh, children of God, do you now see your pursuit of Christ has always demanded a daily dying to your own self and to your own dreams. That final brief sleep of death is but the last laying down of all of those lesser things that you might awake, remade, set free, rejoicing in the glorious freedom that'll be yours. Yes, hate death. It is an enemy but an enemy whose end approaches and whose assault can afflict no lasting wound. Yes, weep and grieve, but more than that, believe. The veil is thinner than we know, and death is thinner still. It cannot hold any whose names are known to God. Rejoice in that. Death is neither a gray void nor a dungeon cell, but a door. And when Christ bids us pass through at last, we will pass from life to life. Amen.